be advised that the content of this podcast is for mature audiences due to subject matter. Welcome to the Romantic Truth Podcast. You may also visit us at romantictruth.org or on Facebook at Romantic Truth in the search. Now, without further ado, introducing Jorzen, the host of Romantic Truth from our studio in Las Vegas. Hi everyone, Jocelyn here, Las Vegas. Romantic truth, of course it is, baby. That's right, and it's February 8th. Folks, you got six days before Valentine's Day. Ooh. Well, we'll talk about that later. I'm going to talk about something that is a silent killer. In all seriousness, folks. Not talking about gun violence. I'm not talking about drug abuse. I'm talking about something you don't even have to put in your body. It's this thing called depression. Now, many times it will take this particular disease time to manifest It's like a cancer of your emotions is what it is, folks. And what happens with this condition, you get to a point of hopelessness and helplessness. The sad truth is, about 71% of completed suicides is based on this particular disease. We don't think about depression sometimes as being an emotional disease. Sometimes we just think of it being a mental illness. But it's far more dangerous than that. It's a progression in a downward spiral. It could be based on a last hope that's failed from the perception of a person. Now, one thing I want you to understand about this, people who are depressed are not seeking attention. They're seeking help. When they tell you that they're depressed, they're seeking help. If they can acknowledge and recognize that disease, they're reaching out for help. See, the problem is there are a lot of people who struggle with this and remain silent. You see a lot of men do this. Recently, there was a young lady, gorgeous young lady that was a lawyer. She was Miss USA. And she committed suicide. 29 years old. She's one of those people that you say to yourself, and I do as a single man, God, if I was only in her life. Because you could get to the core problem. She has some fears, according to some of the notes that she left about becoming irrelevant, aging, going into her 30s. 
the pressures of stardom, the expectations. And see, what she needed was someone to get her out of that environment and that mindset. But see, what happens when you start limiting your scope and you start minimizing your options, depression taps you on the shoulder and says, well, I'm available. And then you convince yourself that that's the only way you have to go in life. I look at other suicides like Phyllis Hyman. She took her life at the Apollo Theater years ago. Concerned with these new artists that were coming about and how the labels had not put money into her for her career. People using her. You see, folks, when things like this start to happen, you have to make sure that your core is intact. And you know those five things I tell you about? Protecting your freedom. Protecting your wealth. Protecting your mobility. Your decision-making skills and your reputation. Those five things will help you fight depression. Because, see, this gives you something to fight for. And the only way you can fight for it is to stay alive and to stay out of that hole of depression. That's your ladder to help you out of that. See, the mobility factor is a one key element. That is a catalyst of change that can be used to your advantage. That's like your, that's like your ladder out of that hole. Because see, what that means is you have a chance for optimism. You know when some of you have been heartbroken like the lady was in Flagstaff, Arizona. She had moved from Seattle because her boyfriend had broken her heart. And she moved to Flagstaff. Now, some people would have said, well, you know, you could have stayed right in town and uh, dealt with that. Even though she had to flee, and she chose to do that, and I talked about at that time about flight, fight or flight. She chose to flee because at that point, that was a better option than hurting herself. It's a very delicate thing. And when someone tells you that they're depressed, don't take it lightly. Try to get them help. Because they will need it. You know, this whole thing about oh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, quit being so damn hypersensitive, etc., etc. These very people that are telling you this are the very people that when they get frustrated or something goes wrong in their lives, these are the people that you see in mass shootings. These are the people that you see go out and do ridiculous things in order to get attention. Because, see, at that point, they're acting out. They're acting out the frustration that they have.
They're acting out the anger that they have. So you have to have a release valve for this of some sort so that you don't implode or explode. We're all volatile creatures as human beings. We have feelings, we have emotions. It's how we perceive these things and to the magnitude that we give them that power. That's key. And what we need to do are set those standards and boundaries. One boundary that you can set for yourself that will really help you in life is to say, depression is a boundary that I cannot ever entertain within myself. You want to have that last caveat in there, within myself. You may deal with other depressed people and try to help them along, but for you, you need to have that as an unconditional boundary that cannot ever be changed in your life. Now, there's a difference between negative thought and depression. Depression is a progression of a spiral emotional downward turn. You may run across a situation where you're disappointed, you're upset. However, what you have to do is make it short term. Not to carry it on and then pile on a lot of other negative things that have happened to you in order to try to create a pattern of depression. That's key. You got to compartmentalize the events and understand the circumstances that made that event occur. By doing this, what you're doing at this point is you're structuring your negativity in life and putting it in its proper place. Instead of trying to go and consolidate things into a negative spiral that will take you down. That's what you have to make. That's what you have to do. Another thing that you will need to do is to always, always, I don't mean half the time, I mean always have an option for yourself that's tangible, that's feasible, and that gives you hope, and that is a positive for you. You know, like you do an animal when you corner an animal? What do most people do that are smart? They leave that animal a means of escape. See what depression does, it blocks you in that corner with no perception of a means of escape. You need a means of escape for yourself. That's the first thing that you need to apply. I tell you this because when you get in relationships sometimes, you think there's no hope because this person doesn't love you anymore and you feel as though I got to do something. I can't do something to someone else. I'll do something to myself. No, that's not the answer. The answer is this. The answer is to say, okay, this person, this particular individual does not love me anymore, does not like me anymore. I have to accept that whether I like it or not. But it doesn't mean that everybody 
four point some odd billion people in the world have the same opinion as this person. And this is what you have to do. You have to classify it as an opinion. The reason why you classify it as an opinion is marginal thought and not fact. Now, some opinions can be based on fact, true enough. A lot of the things I do here on this show, my opinions are based on facts. I go and give you references to all these different places and resources for a reason. But here is the thing you have to understand. Even though you have those facts, and say those facts are negative in your way, guess what you can do with those facts? You could take those facts, learn from them, and improve yourself to do better. That's your optimistic option. That's your out. You know, I hear a lot of people, when I used to post the facts on Facebook about how, you know, the African-American community had so many women that were single mothers, et cetera, et cetera. I used to get a lot of flack for that. Why are you, and these women would write in, why are you bringing that up? Why are you exposing us to the white folks and telling them what, what's going on and what's wrong in our community? And then I tell them, well, first of all, nine times out of 10, it was white people who pointed that out. Secondly, more so than anything, it doesn't matter what race the person was who pointed it out. There's a problem, it can be fixed. When you know what's wrong, you have the option of fixing it. When you're totally ignorant to it, you have no option. Because of one thing, you fail to look at what's really wrong. And so you continue what you've done time after time, generation after generation. So what would this mean with those negative statistics? We could do something to improve it. Now, here's the problem for some people. They may try to find a reason in order to not do anything. See, that's the hardest problem with us as human beings. We're procrastinators. What do we want to do? We want to work hard, become wealthy, and then sit on our ass. We want to work for 20, 30, 40 years and then retire and sit on our asses. That's what we want to do. Let's face it. If we didn't want to do that and wanted to be workaholics, guess what we would not need? Homes, a bed. We would just be 24-7 busting our asses. So we know that's not feasible. And we know that at some point we would have to be comfortable. So we have to be more realistic. This is the reason why I tell you, when you start thinking in that spiral direction of going downward in your thinking, this is when you need to reach out and reach out for a therapist. Someone that can help you, a counselor. At the end of the show, I have an 800 number. If you're suffering from depression, well, you could talk to someone. Because see, here's the thing. You may have the perception of you not having any options, but you have more options than you realize. That's the reason why when these people write in, I tell them what their options are. They have choices. And see, that's the thing. And that's a power that you have that many of you yield and don't use. In relationships sometimes, you're depressed in that relationship because 
You perceive that partner is having all the power. Well, have you asserted your power? You don't have to get in their face and stand with them toe-to-toe. You can use your soft power. What is that? (laughs) Just don't participate in the relationship. Pull back your emotions. Pull back your feelings. And by doing that, you will get attention. Women do it all the time, the silent treatment. Right? In order to underscore that there is a problem. Now, another thing that comes about too, with this sense of hopelessness, what you try to do in that spiral downward is to come up with every kind of excuse you can because see, depressions don't work, depression does not work without excuses in order to complement that spiral downward. You make up an excuse as to why you can't take those options, why you can't think outside of what's going on with you. Because in some ways you want to voluntarily lock yourself off. And this is the difficult part of dealing with that. I've dealt with a lot of depressed women in my life. Oh, there were smiles and giggles when I met them. We went on dates, had a good time laughing, all kinds of stuff. And then you talk to them later on and they're almost silent. What's going on? I don't want to talk about it. Well, it must not be too bad. Why you say that? Because here's the thing. If it was that bad, you wouldn't have acknowledged it. So there is something that's going on. You probably don't want to talk about it now. But we need to talk about it. Can I get that promise from you? Well, I guess. And then you find out, whatever that problem is, there are solutions for it. But people want to feel as though, hey, I got to keep this to myself. Now, for whatever reason, sometimes they're brought up that way. And some of the childhood trauma that they've experienced always kept them in silence. And so they were maybe taught to deal with their own problems, have that stiffer upper lip. Ladies, this is the reason why men need a woman of integrity so that they can be vulnerable with them, so they can emote, so they can tell them what's going on with them. See, let me tell you something, ladies. There are some men out there who really want to cry. And I know society thinks, oh, he's weak, he's a punk, he's this, he's that. No, let me tell you something. Here's the reason why many of those men want to cry. They may be on a job, may have been denied a promotion. They worked their asses off in order to provide for you and the family. And they were denied that promotion because they were not liked. They didn't play the office politics. And in his mind, he's thinking I should just go up there and fuck everybody up at that job. But he knows if he did that, he jeopardizes his family and his life and his future. 
but he has no way of releasing that frustration. He doesn't want to seem weak in front of you by crying, by expressing himself, by emoting. Because society has this dumbass standard about men don't have emotions. Men can't emote, they're weak. They're not an alpha male, which is bullshit. Alpha males cry too. And what it comes down to, folks, is this. That woman that he can trust, who he can emote. And let me tell you something, ladies. This is where it happens. If his mother passes away, he's going to cry like a baby. He's going to need you there to comfort him. That's the person that knew him the best. That's the person that put him on his earth. That's the person that breastfed him in some cases. That's the woman that they struggled with in order to come into this world in some cases. Where she could have died and he could have died. They have a bond. He's got to have a good woman that's going to understand that and not go out there and shame him in public about, oh, yeah, you were crying like a bitch. This is why these men are bypassing all of these masculine posturing women. Because they don't want to have to be combative with them just like they do the men at work, just like they do the men that they work with every day. They want to come home to peace. They want to come home to serenity. They don't want to have to get off work, take that long ass drive like I used to do, wait miles out of the way of coming home. They're coming home late, hoping that your partner sleeps so that you don't have to argue. They have a second job of arguing like you just did at your job at work. This is why, ladies. They need a confidant. They need someone they could talk to openly about their feelings. And you don't perceive them as being weak, as being soft. All of this bullshit was marketed to us through gangster rap back in the 80s and it's continued on. You got young men out there killing each other, killing themselves, trying to be hard, trying to act like that they want to be some kind of martyr in the streets. They want to be like a Tupac. They want to be like you name it. You name the rapper. They want to be like him. For what reason? The only people that are going to remember him are a few people in the hood and that's it and then he's forgotten. After a generation or two, he didn't exist as far as people are concerned. You young men really need to start thinking about this. Some of you are dealing with depression right now at a very young age because the pressures of society is on you. You're trying to have a reputation out in the street. You're trying to have the finest girl. You're trying to have the nicest clothes. For what? By the next decade, all that shit you're buying and, and valuing is going to be outdated. That girl's going to be fat and pregnant with somebody else's baby, more than likely. And where are you going to be? And if you're locked up, what was it all for? You got to ask yourself these things. 
You know, I was watching a YouTube video the other day and they were talking about this one guy was talking about how many people he lost in his family. The names didn't stop over dumb shit. Sneakers, jackets, hats, girlfriends, beef with somebody else that they didn't really have beef with, beef with the social media exchange, foolishness, and they're dying in the street for nothing. And this young man was afraid because he was 29 years old and he said, I never grew out of this. I was brought into it. I never grew out of it. And he started to realize that's not him. But he wants to still have the credit of being in the hood, the notoriety of being on the streets. And what he has to understand is this. Where you came from does not define you. Where you're going will give your perception of who you could be. And what you have to do is come out of that mindset. I will tell you as a black man, when I was in my 20s, I thought I wouldn't live until I was 35. I didn't think that a Klansman would kill me or somebody from the KKK or white supremacists. I grew up in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. And I was thinking that whole time when I was little, they were a threat, true enough. But as I grew older, I started to realize the person that will probably try to take my life would be a black man looking just like I am. And I expected to be killed at around 35 in Los Angeles, when I moved to Los Angeles, especially California. And then when I made it past 35, I was like, damn, how did that happen? But what I had to realize was it was the people that I had to quit hanging around. I knew people that were doing dirt I knew people that were pretty bad. But here's the thing. Guess what they did? They helped protect me by saying, you know what, dude? You ain't about this life. But I was their friends. But what they did, even though they lived in the hood, they lived in certain places in L.A. that a lot of people wouldn't go to, the one thing that they did do, they recognized that that wasn't for me to hang out with them in certain environments. Yo, dude, we're going to do a little dirt. You need to go somewhere now. That was cool. They were looking out for my welfare. Not that I was trying to identify with them or anything, but I wanted them to know that, hey, we're still friends. I didn't go for no street credit. Hell, I wasn't no gangster. I wasn't no hard-ass dude out there, you know, stacking up bodies and slanging drugs and nothing like nothing like that. By no stretch. Didn't even want to get in. Didn't even want to get a traffic ticket. But here's the thing: 
They respected me. I respected them. And many of them got out of that life, especially when they got older. I had a friend of mine, when we both turned 35 together, we went and celebrated our birthdays. And he said, man, you know, he says, I was dumb. I wasted a lot of my life. He said, you did the right thing. You went in the military, you traveled the world, and then you went on and got a job, career and everything, education. He said, what I did, I fucked my life off like the people in my past generations did. I didn't challenge myself. I didn't get outside of the spectrum and the mindset of what I was given. And in many ways, he felt as though he has failed himself and he had failed his ancestors. And, you know, he started talking to me and he said, I look at it this way. My ancestors couldn't even be able to read or be able to go to a college or university. And I set my ass out here on the streets, doing the dirt, going to jail. And I had this opportunity in my life to go and excel and to be something and be someone. And he used to always tell me, the reason why we never wanted to involve you in any dirt was because we saw that you were one of those guys that made it. And we were proud of you. And we didn't want you to lose out like we did. I told him, I said, well, I had kind of an advantage. I never was in the hood. I never grew up in abject poverty. Working class, yes. But the way I was brought up in Mississippi, you were no better than the poorest man in your society. You were his equal. So I couldn't turn my nose up to somebody just because they didn't have. Because in Mississippi, the reality of poverty was in your face every day. People dying and didn't have enough money to bury their relatives. People living in homes in certain out-of-the-way places like Edwards, Mississippi, with no windows and no doors on the front of the house. People not having toilets inside their home and having an outhouse in the back. and considered it an upgrade when they got a septic tank. What I'm getting at, folks, is this. It's not where you come from. It's not what you had to do in order to make it to where you are. The thing is, is to go further than you are right now. To grow. That's the option every human being has, no matter where they are right now, no matter what situation they're in, they can grow out of it. I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass or anything. I'm telling you the truth. You have to really look at your options in life because you have a lot of options. A lot of them. 
especially if you're in the United States. You have more options than most people have in other places of the world. That's the reason why they try to get here. That's the reason why they lied in order to try to get visas to come to the, uh, to the United States. Why do you think these people are overstaying to be here? Staying well past their student visas and their fiancé visas and all the rest of the other visas they have. They're doing that because they want to pursue the opportunity they didn't have at home. People want to marry so that they could be here. So sometimes you may look, need to look back and think about all the things you have available to you and take that negative spiral and marginalize it. And the reason being, your options to live outweigh any other options you have. Your options to go forward in life and to grow outweigh any other options you have. I want you to think about the scientist that used to go and experiment with things and they just couldn't get it right. And what did they do? They didn't quit. They didn't say, oh, you know what? Uh, I'll never get it right, so that's the end of it. I'm just gonna just spiral into depression. No, what they did, they stayed in that lab until they got it right because that hope and that optimism kept them going. And this is the same thing you have to apply in relationships. You get set, you get set back in a relationship, don't look at it as a life-altering situation. I don't care what it is. You can come down with STD, you can come down with AIDS, anything, herpes, whatever. That still does not put you in that category of going into that spiral. You can still make it. I know we like to pursue perfection, but guess what? Sometimes we have to enjoy and relish our imperfections in life in order to go on that makes us stronger. Because the last thing we need to do is to give up, to quit. We can't give up on ourselves. We cannot do that because that's part of our core. That's who we are as a human being. You were not born for, you weren't born for nothing. You have a purpose in this life. You have a place in this life. There's a function that you are essentially fulfilling, even though you don't perceive it. Sometimes you have to challenge yourself to find out where you're supposed to fit in this world. Some of you right now have never tried taking an art class, never tried taking a math course, never tried challenging yourself in technology, never tried challenging yourself in medicine. You don't know what talent you still have that you have not even tapped into. You wonder why continents like Africa never built automobiles, why they never built skyscrapers and those kind of things. They had the resources. Look at the Native Americans here in the United States. 
Why didn't they do all these things? They had the resources. But they respected the land so much that they never actually applied those skills in order to develop things. So they were bound by what? Fate. Tradition. You have to sometimes step out of that box and go beyond. Beyond the scope and limitations of things that have kind of kept you in that box. To be the innovator. To go beyond the obvious. This is what you have to do. And you do that by challenging yourself. You do that by challenging convention. You do that by challenging tradition. You don't have to be a maverick. You could just be a person that says, okay, what if? Look what Bill Gates did with Microsoft. What if? Look what Steve Jobs did with Apple. What if? Jeff Bezos with Amazon. What if? All of these are what ifs. The only thing you can do is try. And if you fail, guess what? It's a learning experience that you have under your belt. You know, when people go out and they write these books about how they became successful, guess what I don't want to do? Find out how they became successful. Why is that? Because many of those books don't tell you how they failed in order to become successful. This is the reason why I read the white papers and the studies on people that fail. What they've already tried that didn't work. Because first of all, that would save me the headache of trying those things that have already failed. So you go for the things that do work. You go for the things where you can start from a certain level and work your way up. But it all begins with you challenging yourself. Oh man, I don't need school. I ain't good in school. Have you tried? Have you tried taking English? I had a friend of mine that used to have atrocious English skills. When he would speak, it was like I damn near had to have an interpreter. And then one day he said, you know, I'm tired of people looking at me funny when I speak. He went to college just to take an English course, an English 101 course, basic English composition. He began to love it. He began to master the English language. He began to study. And this guy could write some poetry that would kill a horse. Then he started writing things such as screenplays. Then he started writing short stories. And then he started learning more words and learned how to speak properly, which helped him immensely in his career. Helped him with the better caliber of female that he started to date. He was no longer dating these women that were cussing every five minutes. He found a woman that didn't have any children. He found a woman that was looking for a man that would compliment her. He started going in other circles and climbing that social ladder. But it all takes 
the initiative of you as an individual to go forward. And that's what you have to understand. And you have to come out sometimes and go against convention. You're going to get criticism, and a lot of you don't like the criticism, so that's the reason why you don't go forward and do the right thing for yourself. Because you have to start thinking about yourself. You're going to outlive your parents more than likely. You're going to outlive your grandparents and even the traditions that have held you back in your family. I want you to think about some of the traditions that people had to go and let lay aside in order to go on to be successful. They've had to put it aside in order to make it. I had a friend of mine that was from the Philippines. She came here, worked her ass off, sending money back home like crazy. And it got to a point where they kept asking for more and more money to be sent back. Well, what that did, that reduced her lifestyle here in America. It made it very difficult for her to survive. She had to take on a second job. And then later on, a third. And then one day she says, you know, I've been financing my family and extended family back home for all these years, out of tradition. But I never got any benefit from it. I would go back home and they would still ask for more money. And then she started realizing how many people she was supporting back home besides her mother and father. Sisters, brothers, nieces, granddaughters, and all uh, grand, uh, nieces and all this other stuff. And it got too much for her. And then she started tightening the rope and said, I'm only supporting mom and dad. Family got upset. But guess what they didn't do? They didn't die off. They didn't wallow in poverty and die. They didn't starve to death. They still made it. And once she realized that, she started investing in herself more. She started living her life for a change. She started actually starting a family and moving up that economic scale and still took care of her parents. But what was happening during that time, she was overextending herself where a lot of people at home didn't have to work. They were living off of her. She got tired of being the mule. Folks, I'm telling you, you at some point have to start looking at yourself and treating yourself well. I'm not saying you got to be, you know, bougie or narcissistic or anything of that sort. But you do have to start looking at yourself because people treat you according to the way you treat yourself. People love you according to the way you love yourself. People like you according to the way you like yourself. And this thing called depression, that should be the lowest priority in your life. I mean so low that you don't even think about it. Always look at your options first. Whenever you start to feel negative or depressed or going in that direction, 
Look at your options first. And I don't mean blowing smoke up your ass. I mean your real options. Because you have more options than you have liabilities when it comes down to going forward in your life. That's the good thing about being alive in, in America. You have options to do better. Don't let yourself be cornered about a career, about something that has to do with Oh, what am I going to do if I lose this? Fuck it. Lose it. You can still make it with no problem. Whether it's money, whether it's a house, whether it's fame. Because what you have to remember is you have to value yourself more than you value things. And when you get to that point where you are the value in your existence, that carries a lot of weight. Instead of you going to get a Gucci purse to, to create an identity for you, huh, why don't you go and live your life so that Gucci will want to endorse you so that their product can identify with you? See, I used to always think this. And the reason why I didn't, I went to some concerts, but I didn't go to a lot of them. And the reason why was, my philosophy was, well, so-and-so wouldn't pay $80 to buy a ticket to see me. They wouldn't come into my house. They wouldn't go and get dressed. They wouldn't go and spend their gas to come see me. So if I went to see them, I would be doing just that. There's no reciprocity. That's what I'm getting at. I got to go pay for parking, pay for gas, dress up, stand with a whole bunch of people, see you perform, you don't acknowledge me because the crowd is so large. I will come out better supporting you by buying your music. If I wanted to go to your concert, I'm just going to see you and I take that as an expense and I'm not expecting reciprocity for the most part, right? But to do this on a continual basis? Uh-uh. Because what I'm getting at, folks, is at some point, you have to value yourself more than celebrities, more than trying to be like someone because that's going to be the thing that keeps you alive and existing in this unpredictable place we call Earth. We have shit out here that could eat us alive. Literally. Siberian tigers. All kinds of shit. Diseases. We got a disease right now that, that's going around a virus that we don't even know what the hell to do with. We're playing it by ear, getting vaccinated all the time because we don't know what this thing is capable of doing. So what you got to do is to protect that core value and that value within you. I can't stress that enough. And you have to make a commitment to yourself. And that commitment is, I'm going to try to live no matter what. You make that commitment to yourself. Trust me, 
you will figure out a way. All of those emotional challenges, you'll figure out a way to weave through those in order to get up. We fall in a lake. What are we trying to do? Get to the surface so we can breathe, right? Same thing here. That's what you're doing. You're just trying to bobble to the surface so you can breathe once again. Because as long as you can breathe, you still have that opportunity. You know the old saying, oh, there's nothing uh, there's nothing between us, only air and opportunity? It makes a lot of sense. Because there is opportunity always in optimism. More in a moment, folks. a couple of my homegirls we finna go to the club right we all met at my house got dressed pre-gaming and whatnot now while i'm taking my shot shorty just casually brings up in conversation oh my baby daddy gonna be there they still fucking and his new bitch supposed to be there and she might try and jump me i just want to know if she try anything is y'all gonna jump <laughs> wait a minute now who fighting you mean there may be hands thrown we old enough to go to jail now if she don't give a fuck about her freedom which ultimately means she don't care about her life or yours she damn sure don't give a fuck about mine it'll be three on three if y'all jump in that's what i'm saying wait a minute so I'm supposed to risk it all for somebody else, baby daddy dick? You know, they say the pretty ones go down first in jail. <laughs> I don't want to eat no pussy. Uh-uh, I ain't going. So y'all ain't going to jump in if she try and fight me? Well, we just trying to dance tonight. I was going to grind. Leah said she had some twerk to give out, but we wasn't prepared to give out hands. She might hit me. So really, bitch, what you telling me is you don't care about me. How y'all my friends and going to let me get jumped? Bro, I don't fight, okay? You a punk. You right, bitch, but I'm a pretty one. All right, let's see what we have here. James out of Burlington, Vermont. What I'm about to tell you is a long story, but it's the honest to God truth, I swear. From 18 until 20, I had to go through this experience. I'm originally from Atlanta. I was 18 when I started chatting with this woman on Tinder. She was 23, I was 18 at the time. My folks were ready to split. I was the last sibling left. Soon as I left, they were gonna go to their lovers. They didn't want me coming back, so there was no way for me to come back home. This girl and I chatted for about several months, and then she invited me to come up to Vermont. I packed all my things in the car, had barely enough gas to get there, but I made it. When I got there, it seemed as though her mother welcomed me more than she did. It was kind of a lackluster reception at best from her. We were together for about four weeks. And then finally she said, I need to go back home. Her mother flatly refused, offered me the basement. The daughter and the mom got into it. They got into a big blowout argument. That's when I found out the reason why the daughter wanted me to go back was because she was seeing a married man. She had been seeing him for years. 
He had been promising her that he was going to leave his wife for her. She countered by saying that he had an apartment for them and she was moving out. That was the real reason why she wanted me to go back home because she didn't want me to know that. Her mother reassured me and told me not to worry about a thing just to get a job where I could support myself and I didn't have to pay rent. I got a job at a local grocery store and even though I offered her rent, she never would take it. I offered to pay bills. She never would take it. I offered gas money. She would never take it. Daughter had taken up with this guy in the apartment. So it was just she and I. When COVID restrictions came in, we became a lot closer. Talked a lot more. She found out more about my family. I found out more about hers. It was about the middle of 2020 when she and I first started our affair. It all began one Saturday morning when she was upstairs doing laundry. I didn't know it at the time. I was downstairs. I got my laundry basket filled and went upstairs in order to start washing clothes. When I turned the corner, I just saw her wearing nothing but a towel and nothing else, bent over putting clothes in the dryer. I was about ready to walk away and she looked back I didn't say a word, but told me, why am I leaving? She then lifted up the back of the towel where I could see her nice shape. She told me to come here. If that laundry room could talk, it would speak a thousand words. We went to a master bedroom where the action really took place. We were together for that whole year, just she and I, making love 24-7. She's walking around the house naked on a regular basis, so am I. Around December, her daughter decided to show back up. She was upset that I was still there, telling her mother that I was doing nothing but using her. Her mother proudly told her that we were lovers and what was the problem. She told her if she didn't want to see her daughter, if she did, she told her if she wanted to see her daughter again, I would have to go back. She left once again. Mom and I kept on our lives. And during this time, her mother was more like a wife to me than a girlfriend. She was actually telling me things that I would have never imagined a woman telling a man especially about her feelings and her emotions. We became closer, so close in fact, that if I didn't know any better, I would say we were made for each other. Her daughter returned around Thanksgiving of 2021. She was in tears, she was filthy, and looked like she had gone through some hard times. The married guy that she was with went back to his wife, kicked her out, and she revealed to her mother that she was two months pregnant, and she was begging her to come back home. Her mother was very, very skeptical about doing it. I talked her into doing it, bringing her back. She had some rules set up. One, we could never be together. 
the other, we could never sleep together or have any kind of contact whatsoever. She took her daughter and told her that she would have to stay in the basement where I used to stay. Mom and I resumed our relationship and it's been rather awkward ever since. Even now, this morning is a prime example. We were eating breakfast together as a family. She doesn't even look up at me to even say hello. She's like a zombie in silence. Her mother is laid off of her and she's quit bashing her and criticizing her. And she's treating her like her daughter again. And it's kind of odd because her mother's treating me like I'm her husband. It's strange. I really got into something I had no idea something like this would ever happen. I'm just wondering, dude, in a situation I'm in, do you think it's healthy? I don't have any regrets or any kind of remorse for being with her mother. She's the best woman I've ever met in my life. In fact, she's watching me type this email to you. One of her girlfriends hipped her to your podcast. And this is why I'm writing you. Your input would be greatly appreciated. We're all waiting to hear what you're about to say. Thank you. James, out of Burlington, Vermont. James, you have gone through <laughs> an odyssey, bro. Mm. The only thing I could tell you about this is that uh, some of the guys who listen to this, just like with me, you lucky bastard. Uh, look, <laughs> what I'm saying is this. I think in this situation, your ex-girlfriend was trying to exercise control. I think it was a thing of reaching out in the sense that seeing that situation with the married guy, that was a pre-existing situation, but she had no control in that. And what she was looking for was some way of controlling something or someone in her life. She damn sure couldn't do it with a mother. So what was the best thing? Get a guy that's, you know, correspondent. Somebody that's at a distance. Somebody that really had nothing, as she saw it, to stand on where she had full control. By her telling you to come up to Vermont in the first place, she was trying to position you as a side piece. And here's what I would say to you. She probably did this deliberately so that she could show her boyfriend that she had an option right there at her house. You were nothing more than a prop for her. Now here's the thing. You even said that the mom had told you that she liked you when she saw you online. Now, that means that mom and daughter were looking for a guy for her. Nine times out of ten, at that time, mom probably didn't know that this girl was messing around with the married man. So she probably played it off innocently. Like, 
Mom, I'm looking for a boyfriend. This guy I found, he's really cute. We're corresponding. Everything is going well with us. Uh, why don't we, you know, see about him coming up? That's probably the game she ran on mom. But in actuality, she was looking for somebody to counter the married guy. Because see, what you have to remember too, with these kind of complex situations, when a person feels like they don't have any leverage, they try to get it. See, he has the opportunity, the married guy, to go back to his wife, which he eventually did. And he probably threatened her with that. Who knows? So there's a good possibility that what she did to counter that was to get some guy to travel and come up there. I guarantee you she tried local guys with that same strategy and for some reason it didn't work. And more than likely it didn't work because the guys didn't like moving in with a girl into her house. Think about it for a moment. You were the only one that was desperate enough to do that, let's be honest. And that's the reason why that occurred. See, she didn't want something where she went to someone else's place. No, that wouldn't have cut deep enough. She had to find someone that would be willing to relocate and live with her and her mom in order to rub that in his face. So this was all about her proving a point to him, using you as an example. What she didn't count on was mom actually having feelings for you. Those feelings her mother had for you started from when she first saw you. And then after she had that time with you to get to know you even better, she liked you even more. That's why she wasn't phased. And I'm willing to bet you that was out of the ordinary for her to walk around the house like that in a towel. She did that deliberately because she was going to go and she was going to consummate that relationship. And she thought the best way to do it was the way she did it. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if she even strategized on when you would probably do your laundry. She was hoping that you would come up there and see her like that. That wasn't by accident. That was deliberately. Once she did that and got you in that bedroom, she probably gave you the best sex you ever had in your life. And she probably told you all these things that she had admired about you. She was unleashing her inner self and those feelings. And being that she's done that at that point, she fell in love with you. And so at that point, the daughter couldn't have done anything to get you back. There's nothing she could have done. See, the mom apparently knew at some point that the daughter was messing around with a married man. I'm sure that came out. I'm sure it came out even before they had that argument. I would not be surprised. And that was a rift that had been going on that pre-existed before you got there. It wasn't something that just happened after you got there. Mom had some kind of inkling. And I want you to think about another thing. Mom wanted to give you the red carpet treatment when you got there because mom was having you in her sights for the longest. I don't think this was a conspiracy between her mother, mother and daughter. I don't think that at all. I think it was a rivalry. Now, <coughs> since you are now with the mom, 
the daughter is rather contrite and she's just trying to redeem herself. What I expect to happen is after that baby is born, things are going to change. Mom's going to be grandma. You're going to be granddad. I don't think mom's going to marry you. I think what's going to happen here is that the two of you are going to wind up being her support mechanism for her to go out and get a decent man. Now, here is the problem. I know what the temptation is and what mom's afraid of. Mom's afraid of the two of you hooking up again. She's going to make damn sure that doesn't happen. Because mom wants you. Plain and simple. The daughter doesn't have any leverage to complain about your relationship now. Her hand's in the lion's mouth. You have now got more favor and more clout than the daughter does. She burned her bridge with her mother. Now, I'm sure the daughter's probably giving mom guilt about taking her man, that kind of thing, but she's probably looking at it from the standpoint that you were never mama's man. I mean, mama, mama's saying that you were never her daughter's man because she was already out there with someone else. Now, it's interesting, nothing was brought up about your girlfriend's father. So I'm assuming that they were divorced or she was widowed or something of that sort. You didn't specify. So I can't elaborate on that. Don't know. But I'm sure if he's still alive and around, he would probably have an issue with a 40-something-year-old woman being with a 20-year-old guy especially under the circumstances that actually made this relationship come to fruition. You have a complex situation, man, but I will tell you, you landed on your feet. You got a supportive person. And now there are a couple of things that I would point out to you also. I think you are very adaptable to this situation because you lost that connection with your family, your parents. And this was like a substitute in a way. You were at that point where you had to make some decisions in your life. And fortunately for you, this woman came into your life who's older, more mature, that could let you find comfort in that decision. I noticed that you talked about you only had options to join the military, go to college, or something like that. And you chose the young lady. Now, what you have to look at is that is exemplifies your priorities in life. And what does that mean? It's exemplified with where you are now. A woman has been your priority in life. Some sort of security some sort of matriarchal support. Even with the girlfriend, that was the incentive for you to come up there. The mother underscored that need that you had. So that made it more conducive to you staying. She didn't charge you rent because she didn't want to lose you. 
She didn't charge you anything. She wanted to make it as comfortable for you as possible to be with her. She was at that home alone. She had no entertainment, no sexual partner, no love. And so when she's done, she said, well, I'm going to put all my energy into this young man. Daughter be damned. Morals be damned. Boundaries be damned. I'm going for me now. I'm going for the love I want. And what she was looking for was an excuse which fell in her lap with her being with a married man. I believe personally, just my opinion only, that mom knew that she was messing around with a married man long before you came up there. I think that had been an ongoing thing. And mom saw the opportunity to have a young man at her disposal because daughter was preoccupied with lying to him. And you were there looking for affirmation in some kind of way, looking for support, and you got that. So in a way, inadvertently, everybody benefited, except the daughter, if you really think about it. And she thought she'd be the biggest beneficiary, being with this man that possibly was telling her a whole bunch of crap about leaving his wife because he rented an apartment. That doesn't prove anything. If he didn't move on to legal paperwork, she was a fool for moving in with it. And once she probably told him she was pregnant, he said, screw this, I'm going back to my wife. Now, she's got to go and try to get child support from it. That's going to be another thing. The daughter is going to be caught up in a lot of legal morass. Now, I want you to think about it. What if you were still in that relationship with the daughter? And you decide to stay there and be loyal to that daughter all the time and not mess around with mom. What would have happened in that situation? You'd have been right with her, rearing somebody else's baby as her boyfriend, going through all that legal custody crap with them. This is something now she has to do by herself. You guys are going to be in a supportive role but you won't be in the main supportive role like you would have been as her man. You dodged a bullet there. The daughter is envious of her mom now because mom benefited from being with you. That's what it comes down to. Oh, dude, I tell you, uh, don't complicate your life any more than it is, okay? <laughs> If you're going to be with this woman, just be with the mom. Don't even think about the daughter. Because more than likely, the daughter's going to be on her way out anyway. She's going to go and find another relationship to get away from the situation that she sees now. And then again, she might not. She might just wind up lingering around, but I doubt it. I think more than likely she's going to, after she has the baby, try to go and start up again. Whew. James, good luck to you, man. More in a moment, folks. I need a beer after that. Jesus Christ.
Now, I want to expound on that last uh, email from James. Uh, One thing I want you to understand, folks, boundaries are very important. Now, what this tells me also was that James didn't have boundaries. The daughter didn't have boundaries. The mom did not have boundaries. So this is what happens when you get into situations without those. Now, one thing to keep in mind when you set boundaries in your life for the type of person you want to be around and be with, if they start complaining about those boundaries, they are the reason why you have them. A person who can respect your boundaries will accept them. The person who has a problem with your boundaries, they're the people that you're trying to keep those boundaries up for. That's the way that works. Now, another thing also to keep in mind is your time and your emotional capital. These things are valuable, very valuable. Every time you give someone attention, what you're doing is making an investment with them. Now, here's the thing I will tell you. You will also spend your time and emotions your emotional currency, I'd like to call it, with people that are not worth your effort. Those people you are expensing. And this is the reason why I tell guys, there's a difference between investing in a woman and expensing a woman. If she's talking to you on a materialistic basis, if she's telling you something like you broke ass, whatever, What you have to do now is look at her as an expense. You're not making her less than a human, by no stretch. But what you're doing is you're making her less desirable as a partner. And there's a distinction. In other words, ladies, let me explain it to you. With gold diggers as a prime example, or women who are asking for a six-figure man or a high-value man, when they're demanding that, that man is not thinking her, uh, thinking of her as an asset to invest in. He's thinking her, of her as an expense to exploit. So instead of meeting her demands, no, he's going to go for the lowest common denominator it would take to get in her panties. That's the way that works. Because what you do is when you put a value on yourself like that, The first thing the guy is going to try to do is go for the bargain basement deal with you. He is not going to take you to a five-star restaurant. He's not going to do all these things that you're demanding because he feels as though you're not worth the investment. That's the reason why it's not happening. So you can go on and say your standards are so high because you have all of these things you want to have done for you. But he doesn't see the value in it. That's one thing about your standards that you have to establish. Your standards have to have a transferable value to the person that you're raising those standards to so that they can respect them. When they don't respect them, it's because your boundaries are out of place. Your standards are out of place. And there's a distinction. See, we would like to say, oh, well, you know, they they, they don't measure up to my standards. But here's the problem. Your standards are not worth the measuring up to. 
you only see the value in those standards. It's not transferable, just like currency. You could have money of a different country, but if that other country doesn't accept that money, you got to go through a currency exchange, right? Well, the same thing holds true when it comes down to these standards. They have to be something that's convertible, something where you could go and set it and someone else honors it. When it gets to the point that they're set too high, then they're devalued. It's just like currency. Take, for instance, if the U.S. dollar, if they said, okay, every U.S. dollar is worth $5 now. Well, that would sound good in theory and that would last for a couple of months or so. But what would happen is the United States at that point would have overvalued that currency, which means that countries that had a lower rate would benefit. It would be hard to export American goods because they'll be too expensive for the foreign markets to buy. You as an American citizen could not afford things at that rate because things would be ridiculously high. And so that would mean that countries like China and the rest of these countries would make a killing off American consumers because they could get their product in the market for a cheaper cost. This is what happens when people overvalue themselves with their standards. So you want to keep your standards in moderation where it's convertible, understandable, and reasonable with another person. The person that's going to be pissed off about those standards is because you had them so low and now you set them up. Another thing too, ladies, some of you will say something like, okay, I have six kids, so now I'm going to raise my standards where the man has to wait to have sex with me until we're married. Well, again, you've raised your standards too high. The reason why, the reason why, six other guys came in you at some point and produced people from you. So they don't see the value in that. That's just the way it is. So instead... You can set those standards to say something to the effect of, well, I'm going to make sure that I have a committed relationship prior to us getting together instead of having marriage as the standard before you do anything sexual. Committed relationship is reasonable. You're not just going to go in there and open your legs for anybody. That's understandable. But something like that is more transferable then, oh, we got to be married before I have sex with another man. Not if you've had six kids. No man's going to take you seriously on that. So you've overpriced, you've priced yourself out of the market. And I know that make make you feel good with your ego, but it doesn't do anything as far as actually moving you forward in a relationship. That's the problem you have. And then you're going to have a lot of guys that are going to try to undercut you and try to say, well, you know, <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to lie to her to say that her values or standards are at a level that I can meet in order to get with her. It's like basically inflating the value of your standards in order to get with you. So they're gaslighting you in order to get with you is what they're doing. Don't fall for that. The best thing to do is have them reasonable. I know a lot of you ladies are frustrated because you've had children out of wedlock and you thought that your strategy of 
having a child with a man would keep the man and now you got a whole bunch of kids. That You should have known after the first or second try that that wasn't going to work. But some of you are persistent on that because in some cases that's all you know. Let's face it. But the thing you have to understand too is that you really have to think now because you're getting older. And as women get older after they've had these children, they start to think that way. And they're not no longer thinking like that young, naive teenager when they first started out having children. Another thing too, age does not equal maturity. We would love for that correlation to be real, but it's not. You could be a fool, and as you age, you're an older fool. Because if you don't learn from life's lessons and from your experiences and just stay adamant with the way you believe, that does not have to be proven, by the way, you could still make the mistake over and over and over again in order to support that belief. Sometimes belief costs you. Because, see, you don't have to qualify it, you just have to believe it. And it costs you friends, it costs you opportunities, it costs you, in some cases, wealth, success, and prosperity as well. Especially if you believe in the wrong thing or believe in the wrong philosophy and it's not working. People run into this challenge all the time. You have two biblical scholars. They argue about certain things in the Bible, certain interpretations of it. That's a constant thing. People quote scripture, some modify the scripture, some want it to say what they want to say when it doesn't say it at all. Because what they want to do is to believe and they want to have something to correlate that belief. And they'll take a snippet out of anything. Someone could be explaining themselves in a videotape, for instance, and they'll take a certain segment of it but not have the whole statement and use that to reassert what they believe. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true because the whole statement would have to be uh, done in context, but they'll just take that segment out, that portion of it that relates to what they want to prove as their point, and they will live and die on the hill with that. Because the only thing they want to do is to have what is called a quick right. A quick right is something where you don't necessarily want all the facts or something. You just want a portion of it just to say you were right. A lot of people lose relationships for trying to be right and not admitting they're wrong at times. They lose friendships. They lose opportunities for jobs. You look at World War II. Hitler had all those Germans, all those uh, generals around him, and he wanted to go into Russia. And a lot of the generals knew better. Some of them tried to sabotage the uh, plans to go into Russia. And they knew that that wasn't going to work, but he wanted to be right. And of course, we saw what happened with that. Sometimes you can try to be right so much and believe that you're right that you're so wrong that no one ever respects you again. And this is where you run into problems. And then you become defensive 
about being wrong. And you try to make your wrong a right. You know, it's an example like, as I told you, when I posted those stats on Facebook that time. And all these women were arguing with me, well, that ain't so. Because in my community, ain't that many single pregnant black women. Yes, but if you look at the overall spectrum besides just your community, these statistics are correct. Because they feel as though it's embarrassing, so therefore they feel as though it's wrong. Well, your feelings are not validated by anybody but you. Data and statistics are validated by more people than you. So you're the only person that believe that until you find other people who believe like you do. And then you have what is called groupthink. And with groupthink, you don't really need statistics or any kind of tangible data to prove anything. You can just think that way, and then you go out and you find things that support your argument. And usually they're very vague because you usually have an irrational or an invalid argument because it's based on emotions and feelings. And emotions and feelings will get your ass in more trouble than logic any day. The guy robs the bank. Well, I'll give you an example. The fool that was on Facebook during their live that robbed the liquor store, that put all the hundreds that he had stolen out of the liquor store on the coffee table by his pistol and his Hennessy, bragging about how they went in there and got their money and they got paid and all of this stuff, not realizing that one of the people who knew them contacted the police while they were doing a live, and the cops came to the door and locked them up. The logic of it would have been not to have your ass on social media after you had done something that was illegal. But see, they was in that emotional euphoria of getting away with it. They got logical when they had to go get a lawyer. They got logical when they went to court and had to answer questions. They got logical when it came down to the judge giving them a sentence. Prior to that, <laughs> it was all motivated by emotions. Emotions will always get you in trouble if they go unchecked. You got to have a logical component to make sure you're doing the right thing. It's the reality check that we have. I'll put it to you this way. You have the Democratic and Republican parties, right? You have checks and balances. Why do you have that? You need a logical side on both sides of the argument. Republicans say, oh, you know, we need to give big businesses a little bit more and deregulate so that they can go and make more money so that they could uh, hire more people and give more jobs, right? Democrats say, well, wait a minute now. With deregulation, that means the companies don't have to be so responsible for certain things, such as the environment. They don't have to be so uh, responsible, such as employee rights, those kind of things. And yet, on the other side of the equation, the Democrats want social programs. And the Republicans will say, now, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. We won't be able to afford all the stuff that you guys are trying to propose. So this is when the logic has to come in place to keep everybody kind of balanced. The problem is, is when you get extremes into the mix who are saying, we want it this way, we had a majority, we're gonna do it this way. 
And then once that's done, you have that philosophy and those emotions that are not checked. And then you wind up with a deficit. Or on the other side of it, you cut too many things in society. And these people start to protest and start to realize that, wait a minute, no, 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 you're ignoring some of our rights here. So on both sides of the equation, there has to be checks and balances. Well, the same thing works when it comes down to you dealing with relationships. You're too emotional. You guys get into a big argument. And before you know it, hands are thrown. Now people are locked up. Now the logic of how much time am I going to do comes into play. Am I going to be charged with assault and battery? What am I going to be charged with? But during that time that you're angry, you don't give a shit about logic. But you have to think. And it's all about thinking before you love, folks. The logic of going into a relationship with someone that has no job because you're in love with them. Not understanding that the fact that you may have to wind up supporting that person in some capacity if they don't have a job or not willing to look for one. But you're elated, you're in love, you're having sex, you're doing all these things, you get pregnant, and now you want them to get a job, you want them to be responsible. But where was your logic behind that before you got to that point? You gotta ask yourself those questions. And pointing a finger at somebody else is not the answer. You gotta point the finger at yourself. Oh, if we're going to have sex, oh, you better put on a condom because I don't want to have a child. Oh, girl, why, why I got to put on a condom? You know, it's going to be good. Nope, condom or no entry. Ah, oh, damn. That's a standard that you established for that person. They don't meet that standard, they don't get access. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. And I've had it in reverse with a woman. Why are you putting on a condom? Why are you using spermicide? What, you think something's wrong when you think I'm, in, I'm diseased or something like that? I know when my period is. I know I can't get pregnant. I'm not taking that chance. Oh, so you're saying you don't trust me? No, I don't. Why not? Because you may say one thing emotionally. Your body may say something else physically. Your body may say, she thinks that she's not going to get pregnant. I got an egg sitting right here waiting for some sperm to get in it. The problem is a lot of people try to equate their emotions to logic and to science. And this is what they screw up every time. And before you know it, they find themselves in predicaments and situations that are ridiculous. See, we're in an era now where you can't call things for what they are. You have to be politically correct. You have to, in essence, be that person that kind of add fluff to things. I remember one time a transgender woman asked me, a friend of mine asked me, why don't you consider being with a trans woman? And I told him, I said, well, one thing, you have a penis just like I do. And he's like, yes, and? 
you only have two holes. So what does that have to do with anything? I deal with women with only three, and that are natural. I said, another thing, a biological woman produces this theremone, and the theremone it produces makes me horny. I said, so in my view, you can never replace a woman. I respect you for what you believe in and the way you live your lifestyle. I have no problem with that. The only thing I have an issue with is I'm going to be with a biological woman. Plain and simple. Something that comes to the factory already with the equipment. Not something that has to be manufactured or rearranged after birth. Now, this is not a knock at the uh, LGBTQPAI community at all. It's just a preference. I respect them. I respect their lifestyle. I respect what they do. But one thing that has to happen also is to understand that they will never have universal acceptance. No group in this country has universal acceptance. No people in this world have that. There's always someone that's going to have personal preferences over you. That's just the way it goes. Being black, I understand. There's some women who don't find black men attractive. I get it. Even black women, in some cases, don't find black men attractive. There's some black men that don't find black women attractive. There's some white women that don't find white men attractive. It goes on down the gamut. There are transgender women who don't find other transgender women attractive. There are gay men who don't find other gay men attractive. Lesbian women that don't find other lesbian women attractive. I have a friend of mine that was a lesbian, that's a lesbian now. She doesn't like butch lesbians. She doesn't like these studs. She likes lipstick lesbians like she is. It's personal preference. And I'm glad we have that choice. Instead of accepting anyone as they are. Because here is the problem. If we started doing that, it would just compound and conflate the problem that we're having now. Because you have so many people that are trying to force you to like them. It could be based on gender. It could be based on race. It could be based on size. It could be based on age. It could be based on anything. And anyone that's trying to force something on you, it's never going to work. No matter how hard you try. So you have to face it. There will be people that love you and like you, and there will be people that dislike you and don't love you. And you have to understand that. That's the way it goes. You look at places like China, Japan. China has the largest minority population in the world, 800 million plus Han. Even within that group, they all don't get along. They don't like each other. There are people that don't like each other within that group. That's just the way it goes. You look at the black community as an example. You got different fragments of the black community, different factions. You got the LGBTQPAI in the black community. You got 
the Christian right in the black community. You got the conservative blacks. You got the liberal blacks. You got the pro-blacks. You got the Aus uh, the Auslander blacks, which is a small group. And what these are, these are people that don't believe in the growth of the population. They think that it should shrink and they should integrate more. You have all kinds of different groups. You have blacks that operate on behalf of white supremacists. You have whites that operate on the interests of black extremists, pro-blacks. So you got a, all, a big cauldron of people in one country, a mixture of all types. People that don't want to be associated. You got uh, separatists who don't mind black folks being free and doing whatever they want to do as long as they don't come into their community, as long as they don't come into their families. You have other ones that are moderates who want to just be fair and not be all for blacks and minorities, but then again, don't want to be all for whites either. And they sit on the fence. So you have a various uh, level of different type of groups. Extremists on both sides, the liberal and conservatives. It's a hodgepodge of people. Now, in a lot of countries, you don't have that, at least publicly. They have to stay in private with the way they feel. And what we do sometimes, we have the misimpression that many of these people that are in these other countries are not diverse like we are. Well, their diversion is repressed. But if they were free and they had the internet, guess what they would do? Be just like the United States with all the diversity and everything else. But the reason why they don't is because of the way everything is clamped down on social events, on the media, and all these other things. That goes to places like China, Burma, places like uh, North Korea, and even Russia to an extent. And see, the problem is, is this. A lot of these countries know that if these countries would have an individual realization of who they are, where these people could be represented in public, what you would see, they were classified as chaos as they saw in January 6th. But what it would be is an expression of individualism and freedom. Now, here's the difference. On January 6th, that was chaotic. To say the least. And it threatened the stability of the country. Whole different ball of wax. Prior to January 6th, you still had the same type of Americans around. You still had this diversion, this diversity of Americans. But now, you look in these other countries where they're repressed, you would have that same sort of diversity. Now, if you look at what happened in Tiananmen Square decades ago, I remember when the gentleman stood in front of the tank 
and people didn't know what happened to him afterwards. What you have to remember was China had to repress that and they did it with a strong arm, with the military. But now I want you to think about one thing. What did China do afterwards? They knew they were facing a lot of sanctions. They knew that it was going to be very difficult for them to grow their economy. So they decided, well, let's give the people some sort of rights. What we'll give them is uh, we'll go to state capitalism. So we won't take the democracy from the United States, but what we'll do is give them economic freedom as a token of appreciation. And that's going to hold them over for a while, but China has a bigger problem. Eventually, it's going to come down where the population is going to want to have more of a voice. And that repression is going to eventually go by the wayside. See, under repressive regimes, just like in repressive relationships, the person who's in power is trying to retain absolute power. And the way they do that is to deny expression of their partner. And as long as they can do that, they feel as though I've conquered this person. It's just like being in a relationship where you feel like you're being held hostage. Your partner's not listening to you. Your input is irrelevant. You feel as though you're emotionally abandoned. And what's your passive aggressive move? start talking to someone who's more supportive. It's just like what happened in Germany. You had Hitler that was in charge. Everybody was afraid of him, afraid of the Nazi regime. But you had partisans who were against the regime. Those people that acted like they were drinking the Kool-Aid, but wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid. And they wanted to fight against the oppression. So they reached out to the allies. Just like people do in relationships and repressive relationships, when their ally is someone outside the, of the relationship who is supportive. Same concept, nothing different. Nothing different. And so they try to give them the ammunition to counter that regime. And the way that ally does it, they may talk to them about steps in order to deprogram themselves from the relationship, steps in order to pick up their self-esteem, steps in order to do something like divorce or like leave. Why do you think the Eastern Bloc countries in Eastern Europe, when you had the USSR, they were trying to keep people within their borders. Just like in North Korea, they're trying to keep people within their borders. The people want to be out of it. They're running away. And they do that for a reason. And the same thing happens with people in dysfunctional relationships like this. They're trying to escape. Trying to get past the wire of that relationship trying to get past the guards and the, and the search towers, trying to get past the minefields that they have to go through in order to get out of that relationship. That's what they're doing. 
like the lady in Berlin, in East Berlin, that was trying to run through the barbed wire and cut herself up, got caught up in there, and she made it to West Berlin. But she had been sliced up with all kind of wire, trying to do that, trying to get away. So she could be free. So she could have peace of mind. So she could think on how she could start her life again. So she could think about meeting other people in her family once again, making new friends, just like a person in a repressive relationship, trying to get past that barbed wire of those threats, those threats, those rules, those guidelines, to get to where they can be themselves again, where they can have peace of mind, where they can associate themselves with family and friends again, where they can have a social life and live in a way where they could be with someone who would respect them. It's the same mindset and concept. You will find in repressive situations, someone is always trying to hold you back from yourself, from who you are. That's the way it is. We'll talk more in a moment. washing my ass and I'm washing it very fast and I just got my nails done and they were so pointy do you know that I stabbed my asshole Now, a lot of you ladies talk about a lack of commitment from men. And you hear this more from women than you do men. And sometimes you wonder why. Well, let's delve into this a bit. It's not just a gender issue, because women do this as well. You know when I talked about dating people, when you go out to date, a lot of people are not emotionally available? What I'm talking about in particular are people who have been traumatized in the past in relationships, and therefore they're slow on commitment and would prefer casual dating, hookups, friends with benefits, because they're still suffering from much of the trauma they had in the past. Now, things that they will do that guys notice right off the bat, when a woman tells a guy, for instance, no sex before XYZ period of time. They avoid intimacy as a result of this. That's their punishment. A lot of these people actually have self-sabotage in the relationship as part of the repertoire. They're thinking that it's gonna come out to be this horrific catastrophe. This is the reason why they preempt trying to fall in love with anyone, trying to promote any kind of emotional interaction, getting too close to that person. They want to be able to bail from that relationship, to leave it, to ghost the person, 
because they're not emotionally stable. Now, they would never, ever admit to this because this is the very thing that they don't want to face. And so this is the reason why a lot of you guys wind up having to go through hurdles and stuff because even though that woman's asking for a commitment, you look at her actions and she's got all of these rules that are in place about no sex before a year, before I get married and all this stuff. These are things because she's still punishing herself, not you, but herself, from failed past efforts when it comes to relationships and love. They don't want to face this. They look at it from the standpoint, well, if I get in this relationship, it's only going to lead to us breaking up. So, therefore, they become very cynical. And in that way, it's like a protection for them. It's like a guard. Well, I know this is not going to go anywhere, so let me put up my emotional defenses. But they're still grappling with something from the past. And, and in many cases, they don't realize it. Now, as you go through relationships, you'll notice different degrees of this. They'll start out by saying, not talking about sex, not talking about int intimacy, that kind of thing. That's because they've been burned and used before. That's all that is, fellas. And understand, they feel as though they've made some mistakes in the past, and the way to correct those mistakes is going forward to have those rules and guidelines set. Now, here's the downside for them. They will wind up being more alone than being with someone. And so, when I refer to not being emotionally available, even though they're asking for a commitment from you, they're not ready. And you can tell they're not ready. Because they're going to have all these rules set up. And a lot of those rules are based on insecurity. A lot of those rules are based on their lack of judgment and poor judgment in the past. There are some people out there right now on dating sites that don't even trust their own judgment. And this is the reason why they're not getting involved in relationships. Because they're afraid it's going to wind up like the last one. Or they're afraid it's going to wind up with them being hurt. Or they're afraid that it's going to wind up with them giving more than they get back. And so the reason why they only ask for that exclusivity is because of the fact that they just want you. And when they want you in this situation, this is what you have to watch. They want you so that they can do whatever they choose to do in it in order to make them feel better about the poor decision that they made before. So in other words, even though they know that the script is going to wind up being sabotaged in the relationship itself, they want to have some modicum of control of how that particular situation winds up. Because, see, failure is their best friend. They know this. And what they're going to do is try to avoid that failure symbolically, but emotionally, they know they're headed down that path. And they want to be the first person to be emotionally unavailable, to go and to leave the relationship when they feel as though they've been in it too long. See, the whole thing is, it's about proving to themselves that they could be with someone else, committed to them, but not going to the point of actually giving of themselves in it.
This is more or less like a test run for them. And these people will go through this. And then when it gets to the point of intimacy or making a decision to be closer, they end the relationship right there. That's their out. And sadly, you have some people that do that. It's just like starting a meal and not finishing it, throwing the plate away and halfway through it. You take a few bites, you throw it away, say you're not hungry. It's not that you're not hungry, you're still hungry. But you're like, well, let me stop before I get full. Let me stop because I don't feel comfortable eating this because I probably want more. It's a way, and it's kind of crazy, but it's a way some people actually cope with trauma. This is a way that they actually cope with a situation. They want to be brave to a certain point to confront their fears, and then they back out. They chicken out at the last minute. They quit. But they want you to have the commitment to give them that affirmation that they're going forward and doing something, but they have no intentions of finishing it. I can't tell you how many people have ducked out on people after a couple of dates because when it starts to get serious, they dump it. Now, another safeguard that people will use, friends with benefits, they will come in with conditions like, don't get serious about me, we're not going to get serious about each other, we're just going to go on and do what we want to do. The reason why they do this is so that they can just set up a scenario for their carnal needs. They probably didn't have sex in the first relationship or the last relationship. And what they're going to do is make that the focal point of this one. Yeah, the camaraderie and the friendship is an attribute, but it's not the full, it's not the full focal point of the commitment or relationship. Because what they're doing is compartmentalizing their pain. Well, my boyfriend... He never wanted to touch me in the past relationship because we argued all the time. I don't want the complications of arguing in this situation. I'm just going to go for the sex. So we're going to be friends with benefits, with no commitment, with no emotional ties. Now, the problem with most people is they get involved and then they start getting comfortable. And then they want to change up. Hold them accountable if they're in a friends with benefits relationship. Don't let them slide into a conventional relationship from that arrangement. If that's what they said they wanted, let them eat their beans like they're supposed to. Don't sit there and placate them. Seriously. Because the only thing that's going to do is going to encourage them to do it more. Another thing, too, with this whole dynamic. Many of these people are suffering from emotional abandonment. They're afraid that you're going to leave them and hurt them. So they want to be the first person to do it to you. They want to do it to you first because they felt the pain in the past. So that's the reason why they want to go and drag you into a bullshit relationship and not make the full commitment, even though they ask you for one. That's just to make them feel more secure. Well, you're with me. Hold my hand. All right, you're getting too serious. Let me let you go. Uh, Uncouple your hand from mine. And they're ready to go. Because in their minds, it's only going to lead to disaster. And they'll go up to that point until 
they get to that traumatic point where they were in that relationship and they let everything go. This happens more often than you think. You know, it's just like watching a scary movie and then you get to that point where you know something's going to happen in it and the girl starts to cringe and she covers her face in your shoulder. That's what it's like at that point. She's no longer interested in the movie. She's interested in not seeing it. That's the way they treat the relationship in that perspective. So you want to keep that in mind. Now, what that means is that if you got into a relationship with this person or these type of people, and you go and you give your emotional capital to them and you invest in them, the only thing you're going to get out of that is disappointment. This conflates that thing where you're thinking, okay, the only thing I have to do is just do the right thing and we could go on with this relationship, but I'll just go and do all these different things that are required to in order to appease this person. And then you start to realize that no matter what I do, it doesn't do it because they're sending me mixed messages and all of a sudden they ghost me. And then they're asking, well, what did I do for this, this relationship to dissolve like that? And what's the answer you usually hear? Oh, nothing. I, I just, uh, I'm just not ready yet. They weren't ready before they started. It wasn't something where they found out or discovered they weren't ready. They weren't ready at the beginning. What they had was a false sense of confidence that they were. It's like the kid in the classroom who starts to draw on a piece of paper. He makes his first line, messes up, and what does he do? He doesn't erase the paper, he throws the paper away and starts on another sheet until he's gone through a whole tablet. When I first started out in life, I was like that kid. And then I learned, you know what? Why waste the paper? Even if I mess up, I can always correct the mistakes. You got a lot of people that don't like to correct mistakes when they start out in relationships. They'd rather start over again with someone new. And they go through that same cycle. So that's what I mean when I talk about people who are emotionally unavailable. They have no intention of completing the relationship. They know they're going to start at one point and they're going to get to a certain point and then they're going to flake out. They're going to blow up. Especially if they were in a relationship where the only thing that kept the relationship going was sex. When it comes to intimacy, they're out. Because what that's a reminder of was in the past relationship, the only thing my partner was interested in was sex. So in this relationship, the first thing they're thinking is sex is going to be the first thing that this person is going to go for. So therefore, when we get to that point, we're out. I'm done. It could be emotional commitment. That person asks for an emotional commitment from you and they claim that they'll give you one. But when it gets to that point where you have to, where they have to give one, uh-uh. Nope, not ready for it yet. Now, we'll be friends. We'll be friends with benefits because that's going to tie me to you and I'm not ready for that because I'm not ready to be hurt again. Because they see it, it's going to play out just like the other relationships. Now, how do these people get this way? It's because they've been repetitively participating in that same pattern of behavior. So these people are prone to fail in relationships. 
no matter who they're with. They're going to always blame the other party as being the problem because that's their cover. But they are the problem because they haven't resolved a problem that still lingers. See, what a lot of people don't realize, just because you're in a relationship does not mean that the influence of that person that hurt you has gone away. In fact, that person still has that control over you years, decades later. We even see this evident with kids who have been abused as children and when they become adults, they have certain patterns of behaviors that are triggers that stop them from growing as adults. Same thing applies when it comes down to triggers in relationships. Men and women experience this. The man who doesn't want his wife going out with her girlfriends because his last girlfriend was going out and going over to the girlfriend's house and meeting other guys. So therefore, that's a big insecurity for him. When she starts talking about going out with her girlfriends and having girls night out, he ends the relationship. For that reason, they do it. Because that's an area of sensitivity that they care not to experience or go through because they've been traumatized in the past. More in a moment, folks. Romantic Truth would like to take this opportunity and applaud our listeners and over 40 countries for their support. If you need someone to talk to in regards to help, you may contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255, available 24 hours. All correspondences read on the show have been pre-screened and pre-approved by the submitter to be aired on the show. The views and opinions of this podcast does not reflect those of Romantic Truth, Anchor, Spotify, or any of its affiliates. The opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guests, and should not be deemed as professional guidance, advice, or a professional practice. In the event you may need professional assistance, contact your local federal, state, or county agencies for specific assistance in social services, family counseling, or mental health services. For all medical, legal, and financial services please contact the appropriate licensed and certified professionals within your region. The music that is provided on this podcast that is not provided by Anchor is used under waiver by Jaws and One Music for fair use. Please be advised that the content of this podcast is under copyright by Romantic Truth and James Adams.